Well, to start my message this morning, I'm going to show you a music video, and uh, it's a little cutting edge, so if it offends your sensibilities, I apologize in advance. Let's show it. of the guy's hair, I gotta say. I mean, hello. I, I am so jealous of that hair. My other question, though, is, is there a wedding that's missing a wedding party or something somewhere? Well, let's focus on the message of the song, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. Amen? 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 Some of you are saying amen, and some of you are going, no! That doesn't settle it. Some of you are saying, that's exactly the kind of circular logic that makes it hard for me to be a part of this sort of thing. That's an elephant in the room. You know, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. That absolutely does settle it for me. But it wasn't always that way. Come on, was it always that way? Wasn't there a time in your life where there were some questions in the way? Some questions in between where you were and that? Of course there were. And isn't it possible that there are some people in this very room who say, I would love to be this exciting part of what y'all are doing, but I've got some questions. It's possible, isn't it? And so this series is about those questions. You know, it seems like there are these questions that sort of circle around the Christian faith, and they're elephants in the room, aren't they? And a lot of times we just don't even pay any attention to them. We sort of, well, let's not talk about that. Let's just navigate around them. Well, I say, what do you do when an elephant comes into the room? Invite him to dinner, right? Say, come on! If there are logical questions that we are somehow afraid of, I think we've lost something, don't you? I'm pretty sure God is even smarter than our questions, hello? So let's ask these questions. Let's just dine with the elephants for a while. Last time, we looked at the question, are the Gospels a historically reliable record? 
Because we're looking, here we are, we're Christians because we believe that Jesus did what he did and said what he said, right? Our whole, we're, we're staking our whole eternal life on that being historically true. It can't be a myth, it can't be a story, it has to be true in order for us to have confidence that we're saved, right? And so last week we applied the same uh, historical tests to the Gospels as are applied to other historical records of antiquity. And I tried to demonstrate to you that we have more, substantially more reason to believe in the historical reliability of the Gospels than we do in that which has been said about Julius Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, and Homer. Combined! So we can move forward from there saying at least we can have, we just applied the same tests and said we can have confidence in the historical reliability. You're saying, yeah, but some of the things are so strange compared to other historical accounts. Well, that part we get to later, but you start by saying, is it reliable, right? Okay. Well, today I'd like for us to move on and really ask the question, another elephant in the room, is Jesus Christ really the only way to heaven? I didn't want this was a rhetorical question, you guys. Don't get ahead. Y'all may go. From now on, I'm going to ask that question rhetorically, please, okay? I'm going to ask some really big guys to come up here and hit you on the head if you answer it out loud, okay? <laughs> Is Jesus Christ really the only way? Don't answer. Let's just ask the question. I mean, in an age that we live in with so many well-developed world religions around us, right? Can't we ask the question, is Jesus Christ really the only way? It seems like an elephant in the room. Father, I invite the power of your presence to come now as we look into this. Your word abides in us, Lord. We, we are fully confident that you are who you say you are in your word. And yet I just know it's okay to have questions. And so I just invite the questioning mind to open up, to receive some possible answers, but that the spirit of that man would be opened up to the spirit of God today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with the scripture. Does the scripture really say that Jesus is the only way? In other words, let's take a minute to say, do we really have an elephant here at all? The scripture says, if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14... It's a familiar passage to many of you. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? He said, believe also in me. He's equating himself with God. And he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. In the King James it says mansions. It means compartments. <laughs> there are many places. In my Father's house are many places. He said, I go there to prepare a place for you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So this whole thing Jesus is talking about is about going to heaven, right? And he said, and if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So this whole thing he's talking about is about going to heaven. Thomas, one of his disciples, spoke up in the next verse and said, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. <laughs> How can we... How can we possibly know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty categorical statement, isn't it? He says, I am the way to heaven. I am the way to the Father. I am the way to satisfy this eternal longing that you have inside of you, this hunger. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very categorical statement. I think maybe we do have an elephant, don't we? If you look a few pages back in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, you'll discover that Peter and John had been arrested by the Sanhedrin, which were the religious bad guys of the day, when it comes to Christians anyway. Peter and John had just made the mistake of healing a guy who had been crippled from birth in the name of Jesus. That's a terrible thing to do, isn't it? Guy walked, he leapt, it says he praised God. Of course, a wonderful thing to do. Religious authorities were threatened by this, and so they called Peter and John in. And they said, by what name do you do this? They said, well, we do this in the name of Jesus. They said, oh, no more talking in Jesus' name. There will be no more talk of Jesus. And in verse 12, they say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. (laughs) He said, we have to talk about Jesus because that's the only name that brings salvation. Sounds like we have an elephant in the room. Keep flipping back to 2 Timothy. No, 1 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, for there is one God. That's a relief, right? For there's one God and one mediator between God and men. One way of getting fixed up with God, a mediator. The man, Jesus Christ. There's only one, he said. It's Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. So there's one mediator for all men. He says there's not a mediator for some men, and maybe another mediator somewhere else for other men, but he said there's one mediator for all men. That pretty much answers it from a biblical standpoint. That that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. There is an elephant in the room, so let's deal with it. And again, you've got to bear with me because this style of teaching on Sunday morning is a little bit outside of, my, outside of my wheelhouse. Good news, but not my pay grade, so that's good. Okay? <laughs> so is Jesus really the only way? <laughs> Guys, you've got to stop. Let's start with a theological point of view. Like from a theology, theologically thinking, is Jesus Christ really the only way with so many other religious possibilities in the world? really centers around two questions. The first question is, is the sinless life of Jesus Christ and his atoning death and resurrection the only means by which the penalty of sin is satisfied and the power of death defeated? So that's the first question theologically. Is Jesus the only one who can get our sins forgiven and get the power of death over us broken? That's the first question. The second question is this. Does a person have to express a personal faith in Jesus Christ in order to be a recipient of the redemption he provided on the cross? In other words, is it necessary for each individual person to come to that place of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior? Those are the two questions 
that are really looming over this elephant. And there are three possibilities theologically. The first is called pluralism. And it answers these two questions, no and no. Pluralism says there are many religions in the world and they're all equally valid. That's what plural is. You can hear plural in there, right? Which means more than one, right? So it, pluralism says all religions are equally valid. So it would answer no, no. That no, the sinless life of Jesus is not the only payment for sin because there are lots of others, right? And it would also say, of course not, that if that's not the only way, then you don't have to come to a personal knowledge of Jesus. That's what pluralism would say. There's a second theological viewpoint called inclusivism. And that says yes to the first one, but no to the second. It says, yes, Christianity is absolutely true. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, but a person doesn't need to make a personal commitment to that because in this inclusivism, the other religions, if a person is religiously sincere, they're umbrellaed into that. And so it's included. I think Clark Pinnock is one of, the, one of the proponents of this kind of idea. And so that, yes, Jesus died for your sins. Good news, you don't have to do anything about it. All right? That's a yes, no. Does that make sense? Inclusivism. The third theological perspective is exclusivism, which answers yes, yes, which says, yes, Jesus Christ is the only means of a propitiation for our sins, a payment for our sins, and that yes, that each individual has to come to a personal place of understanding that, embracing that, surrendering faith into the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That answers yes, yes. That's exclusivism. The viewpoint of exclusivism, the third point, is the viewpoint of evangelical Christianity. Now, I am an evangelical Christian. Prepare to gasp. I know. As cool as I am, it's so hard to believe. I know. And did you know that we are an evangelical church? We are an evangelical Christian church. I know. Surprise. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. From Genesis to maps, I believe it is inspired by God. That's a pretty conservative viewpoint. That is the conservative evangelical viewpoint. And as conservative evangelicals, we say yes, yes, which makes us exclusive, which gives us an exclusive view of the gospel. That Jesus is the only way we understand the Bible to say, and that each person needs to come to a personal encounter with Christ and, and, and surrendering into his, faith into his life and death and resurrection. Now, doesn't that raise a quick question in some of your minds? You go, but what about the people who have never heard? Isn't that a fair question? It's a very good question. If you come back next week, we'll talk about it, all right? That's the next elephant that's stomping around here. But we come to this place of an exclusive view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the theological viewpoint. Still haven't touched your logical part yet, have we? Analytically, let's go there. Exclusivism from an analytical point of view, if I'm going to stick with exclusivism, then how can it make logical sense that Jesus is the only way in a world with so many religions? How could, is there a possible logical explanation for that? I'm gonna, I've got ten, but I could give you my top three reasons today. I'm going to give you three uh, the top three in reverse order, just like last week. The first reason that exclusivism makes logical sense is because 
exclusivity flows from most uh, logically from a position of monotheism. So monotheism means one God, right? There's one God. Now, in order for a belief in God to make any logical sense, there can only be one God. Because God is a being who has no equal and for whom there is no greater, right? He's alone. And he's absolute in his aloneness, right? He's absolute. That's what monotheism is. It's the only kind of thinking about God that makes sense. I mean, your alternative is polytheism, like many gods. Well, who's God in that scenario? Because if there are other gods who have equal share, or if there's a priority structure of authority in that, then somebody isn't God, right? So at the end of the day, monotheism is the only one that makes sense. Now, if God is one, and if God is someone for whom there is no equal and there is no one greater, then he is absolute, correct? He doesn't change according to circumstances. Now, what multiple religions say is that God is this God to this people, and because in these cultural conditions over here it's different, that he changes, and he changes the way to get to him because he's in a different culture. But if God is absolute, monotheistic absolute, he's, not going, he's also immutable, said A.W. Tozer, which means nothing on the outside of him can change him. And so he's not going to be changed by different cultural circumstances around the world. He is one thing. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. One God. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have what? No other gods before me. He said, I'm one and I'm jealous. So, just from a logical point of view, if God is absolute, then he's, there's only one way to him. God does not make himself relative to any cultural context. You see, religion... Religions that rise up in different cultural contexts, they, they are thoughts and systems about God. What have I told you religion is before? How do we define religion here? We define religion as the thing that people make up when they get tired of waiting for God. And in our desire to make everything relative to us, it brings us to this analytical problem of how can there be only one way? Because we elevate ourselves over God. And we say, God, that doesn't seem fair. You can have that conversation with God, but you better bring your lunch. It's God. And we're trying to make God out in our image. If I were you, God, I would let them all in. But God is absolute, and so logically... He can form one way if that is his plan. Reason number two is that ontologically the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a religion. I know you're not used to me using these big words. I try to hide them on Sunday mornings as best I can. But I went to seminary twice to learn a lot of big words. Paid a lot of money for these words. Gotta let me get them out every now and then, okay? <laughs> Ontologically, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a religion. The elephant in the room asks, isn't the gospel of Jesus one among many equally valid religions? 
That's the elephant. Well, the question is no, not at all, because the gospel isn't a religion. It's a relationship with the living God. (laughs) We make religion out of it, sadly. But at its core, ontologically speaking, not the ontological argument slash Hegel, but just essentially speaking, well, then why don't you just say essentially, Tom? (laughs) Because I knew that word before I went to seminary. (laughs) Thank you. Sure to tip your waitresses. It's not a religion. Never meant to be. So Judaism was a religion, right? And the Jews were for centuries crying out, God, where are you? God sends his son Jesus, and he says, well, I'm right here. He sent his son. See the difference? I'm right here. Now let's have a relationship. There's an enormous difference. It's not a religion. The gospel can't be one of many religions because it's, at essential core, it's not a religion. The religions of the world all represent man's efforts to reach God, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, in stark contrast, shows God's effort to redeem man. It's a completely opposite direction. It's not a religion. It's sad that we make it into a religion. So I think, and that may understand why we're so poorly organized around here, right? Because I think at its core, we're a community of believers. And we want to be just as organized as we need to be to be able to have a fellowship. But not so organized that we become religious. Does that make sense? If you look at the Gospels, you see, or you look at the Bible, you see that God is always reaching, reaching to us. And that's the big difference between the Gospel and religion. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, he created Adam and Eve. For what purpose? Relationship fellowship right on. And what happened when they sinned when God came into the garden? They hid, right? They hid because sin broke that relationship, but God still came. And then you get a Jesus, so the Bible says God did not send, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Saved. He sent him. And you look at the prodigal son story, and it says that while the father was looking, which represents God, and he saw his son coming a long way off, what did he do? Eh, he'll make his way here. It says he ran to him, right? And he kissed him. He ran to him. This is the gospel message. Acts chapter 2. These poor discouraged disciples are sitting around the upper room going, he's gone, he's gone. And what happens? Holy Spirit, I'm coming. Fulfilling God's word. The words of Jesus. He said, I'm going away, but it's good that if I go away, because if I go away, the Father will send another. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about God coming at his initiative, which sets it apart from every other religion. So why would we call it a religion? You so, so world religions, at the center, they have some man, some prophet, some sage saying, I found the way to God, follow me, right? The gospel finds people like us saying just the opposite. Hey, God found us, come here. <laughs> God found us. How many of you feel more found by God than you pursued him? Some of us hunted down, right? Like, let up already. That's what God does. He comes. He's relentless. So there's really no religion to compare it to. We can't say that the the, the gospel is one of many world religions. Because it's the polar opposite of what a religion even is. 
Let me break it down for you. How many of you believe that the Cleveland Browns are a great football team? Still hanging in there, huh, guys? How many of you believe they are a football team? Okay, they qualify. Atlanta Falcons? Anybody? Detroit Lions? Go Lions. Oh, you guys can't handle anything north of the border, can you? You guys are bad. How about, what was it, the, the New England Patriots or something like that? So they got it done. So those are all football teams, right? And they all play what? Football. Correct? So far, so good? How many of you think that the New England Patriots are a better basketball team than the Cleveland Cavaliers? Can't go there, right? Even if Tom Brady shows up with all of his guys and their pads and everything, hey, we're here to play you, Cavs. Coming to your court. What are you doing using round ball? Because they're two different things, right? Tom Brady is not going to be the MVP of the NBA this year, is he? Because they're two different things. The gospel is something completely different than a religion. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. It's not a religion. It's the power of God. Which logically makes it unique and exclusive. The final reason is that God pursuing us is much more logically effective than us pursuing God. If there's one way exclusively in Jesus, and the Bible says that that's God's way of reaching us, it makes logical sense that we would participate in a program where God is looking for us rather than us looking for God. If God were wanting to be found, which, which makes more logical sense, to have people run around trying to develop a system to find him, or for people to hold still and be found by God. The religions of the world say we've worked hard to crack the mystery connecting with, with the eternal and connected with the eternal. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, For God so loved the world that he gave, slash sent, his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Which sounds more logical? Effectively. Let me give you another illustration and try not to think politically. Try to think as generically as possible. Suppose the President of the United States, don't put in a name, any President of the United States was trying to develop a relationship with you. Said, I want to find Harry Matthews. I want to have a relationship with Harry Matthews. Supposing a President of the United States did that. What would make more sense? For the president to sit in the Oval Office saying, boy, I sure hope he knows that, and I sure hope he can find his way to me, like the guy who climbed the fence of the White House yesterday. I, ho- I hope that he can do that. Or does it make more sense that the president of the United States would be, give me his number, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find him. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, stumbling around, Christ died for us. He found us. And I think from a purely logical standpoint, the gospel being exclusive just makes a lot more sense than it not being exclusive. So maybe your question is, then why are there so many religions in the world? That's a good question. I got two answers. One is because Satan is trying to confuse and divide. 
But the second is not so fun, and that's because the church has not done its job. Do some math with me. Jesus spent approximately three years discipling 12 men, right? Now suppose those 12 men spent three years each discipling 12 more. How many would there be? 144. Well done. Who said that? You may go. 144. Now if you keep repeating that, 12, spending three years to disciple 12, that in 27 years, nine cycles of that, you have reached over 6 billion people. 27 years. We are 27 years away from reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ if we start now. Why are there so many religions? Because it's what men make up while they're waiting for God, while they're waiting for Christians to show up, while they're waiting for us to bear the gospel to them. I appreciate your questions, and they're valid questions. They're good questions, and you need to ask them. You're free to ask them. But at the end of the day, I'm never going to be able to persuade you about the validity of the gospel. At some point, it's going to be a leap of faith. You're just going to have to jump. I remember the jump. I didn't even know it was on the other side. I didn't know you were here. I was jumping into space. I had no idea it was going to mean y'all. I might not have jumped. Of course I had a job. But it requires a leap of faith. Ask the questions. Use your brain. Study to show yourself a workman approved and unashamed of the gospel. The Bible says that. Study it up. But at the end of the day, it's going to require a leap of faith. You know, some of the best things in life don't make logical sense. Like marriage. You put that down on paper, it loses every time. You put pros and cons... It loses every time. But what's the factor? The factor is, I just love him. (laughs) That changes everything. It's a leap of faith. Living relationship with Jesus Christ is not limited to your mind. It doesn't even happen there. And it doesn't happen in the emotion. It's not all about getting jiggy. You know, I mean, it's that. That's fine. But I'm just saying, there's another place in you. Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That you have a spirit man living inside of you calling out for God. That's the one who craves God. And that's a faith dynamic. Not an analytical dynamic, not an emotional dynamic. Those things factor in, but at the end of the day, will you take the leap of faith into relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Will you let the cross of Jesus Christ speak over your life? Do me a favor, would you bow your heads with me? I just pray that you'll just bring the cross into view in your mind's eye. The cross of Jesus Christ, and now just in your mind's eye, just draw real closely to it and bring yourself under it, every aspect of your life, every question, every failure, every victory. Bring everything under the cross with you. Don't leave anything out and just ask the cross, ask God, of course, through his cross to speak to your life today, tell you what you need to do next. Come, Holy Spirit, now. Come, Holy Spirit, your church, 
just barely organized well enough to get it done, Lord. We have no desire to be good at religion here, Lord. But we want to experience you and be a community of faith empowered by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. That's what we want. That's what we really want, what we really crave. You said you're the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. That is good enough for me, Lord. That is, I hear your word. That is good enough for me. I will live my days under that covering. I will spend every hour proclaiming that message. Holy Spirit, come now as we bring ourselves under the covering of your cross and tell us what to do next. And there's still a lot of grace flowing from this front up here. There's a lot of grace. There's grace, there's saving grace for those of you who are ready to be saved. I believe there's healing grace for those of you who need healing. I believe there's freedom grace for those of you who need to be delivered. I believe there's a lot of grace flowing from this place today, from the love of God, the Father's love, the power of God, this power to conquer rebuke and conquer Satan in our lives. I believe that's flowing here today. I believe some of you can be miraculously set free from habits that you find displeasing and you interrupt your relationship with the Lord. Come Holy Spirit. I have no judgment against anyone here, Lord. I just pray that in the convicting power of your Holy Spirit that you'll just draw every person into the place of what's next, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Church, I'd very much like to invite you to stand with me, please, and ask some of the prayer ministry people to come on up and get yourself situated on the sides. And these men and women are here to pray for you for anything that you might be facing. If you'd like to become a Christian today, give your life to Jesus, you can come up to these guys and they'll know what to do. Anything going on in your life at all, doesn't have to be that or anything even related to anything I've said today. If, if you just like somebody to pray with you, then you can come on up to these guys, they'll pray.